time has come is we've got to go the extra step. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. I'll compromise. We want to get the job done. I'm Addison Lathers. Geez, they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to balance the power here. And I'm Claire Salmi. It's a patriotic responsibility, for God's sake. And this is 1050 Bascom. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are grateful for the opportunity to talk to one of our PolySci alumni, Megan Arendt, as part of our Career Conversations series. Megan is the Associate Director of Communications at Action on Smoking and Health in Washington, D.C. Megan graduated from UW-Madison in 2010 with a B.A. in Political Science and a Certificate in African Studies. In 2014, Megan also received a Certificate in Communication and Media Studies from the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in 2014. Megan currently serves as a valued alumni mentor in the university's Wisconsin in Washington program. We'll ask Megan about her time at UW-Madison as well as her post-grad education and career path. We'll also ask her for advice for current students and recent graduates navigating a challenging internship and job market and seek some insights for people looking to pursue opportunities in Washington, D.C. Thank you very much for joining us for our, I guess, next installment in our 1050 Bascom series, Career Conversations, where we just talk about what a cool career you have and how students can maybe make similar choices, pursue similar career paths, get ideas from you and copy them maybe. Kind of start off, I would love to talk broadly about your start in terms of your background and maybe getting into choosing majors at UW-Madison. Did you know when you came to UW that you wanted to be a poli-sci major? Yes, I came into UW-Madison ready to major in poli-sci. I had been very active in Young Democrats in high school. And so I was already volunteering on different campaigns, came in with that focus thinking, maybe I'll run for office one day. In high school, I had also been active in Model UN, so I did that at UW as well and joined ISEC. I'm not sure if you know it, they do international internships for students, and it's a ton of students pitching each other both in the U.S. and abroad for those international internships. And so through Model UN and ISEC, I got into a more international focus as well in my career. And after graduation, I assumed I'd work on the policy side of a nonprofit. I didn't expect to pivot into the communication side where I am now, but that poli-sci background gave me a lot of the basis that I use in my work because we work at the United Nations and we work on global treaties. And I have to be able to understand it if I'm gonna write a press release on it, write a blog on it. And so having that policy background has been essential for me to be an effective communicator as well. And where did your African studies certificate fit into this, I suppose, is my next question. That came from Model UN. The very first conference that I was in in high school, the country I was assigned to was Rwanda. And this happened before the famous movie Hotel Rwanda came out. And in high school, I think a lot of us are in our own world and I was growing up in Kenosha, Wisconsin, so not a massive town, not a ton of exposure to the world around me outside of my high school community. And being assigned to that conference or that country and learning that there was a genocide that had happened during my lifetime, 
obviously I was quite young at the time, but I had still lived through it and had never heard of it, was not taught about it in any history class. I was only learning about it because I was assigned Rwanda for Model UN. That sort of opened my eyes to this whole other part of the world that I didn't know anything about. And so I did a deep dive into the African policy because it wasn't something I was learning about in high school at all. So I was very excited to learn about it at the University of Wisconsin. I think it was a relatively new program when I started there, but it was extremely fascinating and played a big role in the start of my career. As you were earlier on in your studies, what was going through your head about possible post-grad jobs and career paths? What did you see yourself doing? I saw myself doing Peace Corps, possibly the State Department. I had been to a job fair and um, picked up all the pamphlets about the State Department. The biggest challenge for me with that was that I would be assigned a country at random and I wanted it to be Africa or in Africa. And I wanted to be able to study abroad there or do one of the ISAC internships in Africa um, and keep that focus going for me. I transitioned into the Wisconsin in Washington program entirely by accident. My mom wanted me to do that. She wanted me to have the more serious, quote unquote, study abroad experience. I thought it would be terrible going to D.C. rather than studying abroad in Ghana or Nigeria or something. To me, it, was, it felt like a step down, but it actually was a step that I needed to set up my entire career. So I'm extremely grateful to that program that I did my junior year fall semester and was placed at the Leon H. Sullivan Foundation. The Sullivan Foundation's goal was instead of the typical brain drain of all the intellectuals leaving Africa, oftentimes they don't come back. And so the goal was to return those people to the continent and bring those resources and help cultivate change locally. And you start you started out there and now obviously you're working communications at Action on Smoking and Health in Washington DC. Don't feel like you have to give me a resume, but what was that professional narrative, that career path that you followed there? It was entirely accidental. I did the internship through Wisconsin and Washington. The Sullivan Foundation invited me back to intern that summer after my junior year and offered me a full-time job when I graduated. So I graduated UW heading right to DC a month later to start working at the Sullivan Foundation. They lost funding two years in though. So I was without a job, living in a city where I have no family, a few friends and needed any job I could to pay for rent. And so I was applying to everything I could find and somehow stumbled upon a staffing agency called Careers in Nonprofits sent them my resume. The first job that they offered to me was action on smoking and health where I am today. And so I took that job thinking this will just be something I work while continuing to look for something else in African policy, but fell in love with the people and was able to make the role into something I wanted. I came in as an executive assistant, which was not the role I had been doing at the Sullivan Foundation. I had been working on that policy side, working at a higher level, but needed a job. And so that for me showed that I shouldn't be picky and I should take anything I could, get my foot in the door. It's always better to be job searching while you have a job, even if it's not your dream job in that exact moment. 
but I was able to make it into what is a dream job for me today. So I think that was pretty surprising and not at all how I anticipated it going. That's crazy how point A to point B that is. You didn't, you didn't get too lost in there. No, not at all. I've had several roles at Ash and started as executive assistant, like I said, answering the phones, taking notes on everything and seeing that there was a gap in communications and no one was doing it and took the initiative and said, I can do that. I can write these different things. I knew my writing skills were strong from poli-sci. We're used to writing those research papers and things like that. If I'm just shortening these things, won't it still work? And I just sort of made it into a career. I guess so. And it's worked. While we're on the topic of ASH, uh, how about you tell us a little bit about it? It's goals, it's missions, a little insight into what your typical day is maybe? Sure. ASH is the oldest anti-tobacco nonprofit in the U.S., founded in 1967. I had never heard of ASH, took the job not realizing that we were still concerned about tobacco. I thought it was relatively obvious that we shouldn't smoke. And why would an entire nonprofit (laughs) need to focus on that? Uh, So it was a massive learning curve for me to see everything that was happening. Ash has worked at the UN level on the tobacco treaty through the World Health Organization called the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. We were instrumental in writing that. We attend the renegotiations of the tobacco treaty every two years with another renegotiation coming up virtually this fall. We also have a human rights program where we're seeking to have UN human rights bodies enforce the right to health and protect citizens from the tobacco industries, seeing the sale and marketing of a deadly and addictive product as a human rights violation. Then we also have a legal program where we're trying to hold tobacco companies responsible for the harm they cause. No other company is allowed to sell a product that kills when used as intended, but for some reason tobacco companies are. So we're trying to pursue that angle. And then we also have an angle that we call Project Sunset, where we're seeking to set the sun on the tobacco industry entirely. And we have a few jurisdictions that have already phased out the sale of tobacco products in California. We're seeking to do that as well in other jurisdictions. I know we touched on the fact that you weren't quite sure about going to DC, didn't quite know it was for you, but every year we have so many students trying to get there. Uh, while they're still at school in Madison, Wisconsin. Do you have any advice to students looking to get to DC? Staffing agencies is probably my biggest piece of advice. It wasn't something I knew about at all and stumbled upon by accident. The House and Senate also have weekly or so emails that they put out of all job openings. I think it's relatively easier if you're applying to work for a policymaker from your home state or from Wisconsin because you have that personal connection that you can pull on, even if you don't know them personally. It's always good to have people from your home district. So I would touch on that specifically where possible. For anyone interested in sort of the communicator journalist field, I'm a member at the National Press Club and really enjoy all of their networking events. There are definitely some virtual and definitely discounts for students. So I would say look into those types of associations for whatever your interest area is. There's a ton of professional associations in DC where we're all trying to network and everyone 
particularly now, is trying to do it virtually, which gives you the chance to start networking before you even get to D.C. And then there's also usajobs.gov. I always thought no one got hired off there, but have since met people who did get jobs off USA Jobs. So I would say just keep trying. Yeah, you never know anymore. <laughs> what's being checked and what's not. Independent of finding work in D.C., a lot of our listeners are students that may not know exactly what the next couple of years of their job search uh, looks like. So as far as strategies for juniors and seniors and recent graduates who are actively making plans for the after college fact, how do you make plans if you don't know what's going on? Is there a way to do it? Can you do it? (laughs) I think you can do it. I would start by building up your resume. Um, and being ready to start anywhere. I think taking the job at Ash was not what I anticipated, would not have been what I had planned at all, but it was starting somewhere. There's the famous philosopher's quote of perfect is the enemy of the good. So if I had continued looking for the perfect job, I could have missed Ash and could have missed this opportunity entirely, thinking my goal is not to be an executive assistant. Why would I accept that job? And so I think getting a job and trying to make it what you want is always fantastic. Something I love about all of the UW interns that we brought on at ASH is that they're really eager to work. And I think that's something common among UW students is a really strong work ethic, an ability to take initiative and produce really good work. And I think it might feel normal to students uh, listening because that is the community that you're going to school in but just knowing that it's not common among all (laughs) interns in DC. So being confident in your ability and knowing that producing good work and taking initiative is gonna be appreciated is also good. Something I talk with our interns about a lot is looking for ways to spin everything that they're doing at our organization on their resume. You're not just researching in general, you're researching for a specific person to push for a specific policy that led to X, Y, and Z. You may not know that day what the research led to, but you can always circle back with a former boss, a former intern manager and say, what came of that thing I did? Add that on your resume. It helps you tell a story and it shows people exactly what you're capable of doing. And that me doing this one in-depth research thing could lead to this for your organization as well. Aside from the resume, Did you do anything outside the classroom that helped you in respect to your success on the job market? Maybe skills you picked up along the way, any like hard or soft skills that students should be working on right now? I would say organizational skills. Absolutely. Everyone wants help with their organizational structure. When they come in, they want you to be able to keep track of your own assignments. They want you to listen carefully. They want to say it once and that's it, and you're gonna have tracked your own deadline, have all the details in order. So I would say working on that skill set would be huge, absolutely. I'm not positive that my involvement in Model UN, in campaigns, in ISEC specifically led to a job for me. I think it gave me some of those skill sets already for organization because I was helping organize the Model UN conferences. So I'm learning how to do that, how to manage logistics. Also with Isaac, I was on the business development team. So I was helping find internships for other students. And I was training my fellow classmates on how to do a cold call and how to be comfortable 
cold calling a company to talk to them. And so I think there's ways that through the different student organizations, you're going to learn those specific skills, but I don't think there's one club that you would learn it. Taking on a leadership role in any organization is going to help you. You're going to have to manage tasks. You're going to have to keep people in line. Um, you're going to have to step out of your comfort zone and speak up at a meeting and run a meeting. Those are all the skills that you're going to need to be successful. What are some things you wish someone had told you when you were in college that you think might be useful for students in general? To practice stepping outside my comfort zone. I think I'm not always the most comfortable in networking situations. It's part of why I joined the National Press Club to force myself to go to these events and talk to people. I'm always much more comfortable at an event with a colleague there and someone else to talk to. So I do wish I had practiced just talking to strangers more uh, on campus and more verbal presentations. I didn't do a ton of verbal presentations. Um, and as you progress in your career, you're gonna be asked to present on different things to a board of directors, to a potential funder uh, at a conference. And all those things were surprising to me. I didn't necessarily think I would be the one doing them, but it's always good to get those skill sets down. Some students have been finding themselves surprised that high GPA and their degrees don't necessarily lead to a lot of interviews after graduation. Sad, sad truth, but it is a reality. As someone who maybe have been in that position of hiring people in your different roles, what distinguishes the person you want to interview when you have a pile of resumes of recent grads with strong GPAs from good universities? How do you pick the good ones and how can we be the good ones? So when I've looked through resumes, a lot of what I'm looking for is if you have experience doing the skills for that job specifically. I will say I'm not positive. I've looked at TPAs. I've probably glanced past it, but I'm looking for the story of what you've done specifically. Were you stepping out of your comfort zone? Will you be willing to answer phone calls? Will you be able to table at a conference and speak up and sell our mission to people? I would say it's hard to show that you're able to take initiative and follow instructions, but you can also work that into that bullet point of what you did of led this program or started, started something new that wasn't there before or suggested we lead with this. And so showing people that you're going to be thinking critically about what they're doing, show that you've helped organize other people, that you've managed multiple moving tasks, multiple moving deadlines. I think those are all things that come with a good GPA, because if you're selling your good GPA well, what you're doing is managing multiple deadlines across all these different classes and clearly delivering on them if you're getting a good grade. And so finding a way to frame your resume in that way, people remember stories. So if you're able to say what you did in a story fashion, it's going to stick with them. Those are the things that I show my colleagues when I want to sell someone internally, look at this cool thing they did. It's a story. I'm not just showing their GPA, which obviously is indicative of the person, but not everyone is going to have the highest GPA also. That's good information. That is and comforting information. Speaking of which, I have a question that I think is really important. As, as someone who's noticed that it's really hard to set work-life balances, like, am I supposed to answer that text from my boss at 8 p.m. at night? What advice do you have for carving out boundaries between work and leisure time and friends and family time? 
There, there's a way to do it. I love this question because my first job in DC, I didn't have a boundary and I was new to DC. So I didn't have a big social circle. I would come home, was bored, didn't have anything else to do, started answering emails. But what that did was also set the expectation among my colleagues that I was going to be online at 8 or 9 p.m. And so other people start seeing it and start responding. And so start engaging. And suddenly you're sending back and forth drafts at 9 p.m. and think you need to do it because they're responding too. And I think it's really important to set those boundaries. Um, when the Sullivan Foundation lost funding and I was moving on, I promised myself I wasn't going to do that again. So when I started at ASH, I've actually been pretty, pretty diligent about this with myself. I've never downloaded the Work Outlook app on my personal cell phone unless I'm at a conference for a week. So I get no work emails on my personal cell phone after hours. Um, and then when I had the option for ASH to either cover my personal phone or get me a work phone, I took a work phone. I put it on Do Not Disturb after 5 p.m. I might glance at it, sure, after 5 p.m., but I'm setting that boundary. My colleagues all have both cell phone numbers. If something's urgent, obviously, if there's breaking news, I'm going to look at it. I'm not just going to let our media presence suffer because I want a work-life balance. Um, but I do draw that line, and so I would encourage people to do the same. It's an internal conversation we have often um, with our um, CEO who says, I may work after 5 p.m. I'm not saying you need to respond. Oftentimes, the executives do work after 5 p.m. They're adjusting hours or they're just really excited about something. So they're going to contact you. So I think getting used to not responding after 5 p.m. and teaching yourself that discipline early on in your career is really going to help. And then it lets you model that behavior for others. With our interns, I tell them, if you're off, stay off. I absolutely am probably going to Skype you or email you when I think of something because I'm working, but I'm not saying you should respond. I'm just pushing it off to you and respond when you are working. So I think being comfortable with that as much so as you can early on in your career. And if an organization is not helpful with that and does expect those long hours, I think that tells you all you need to know about their culture. Should we be more open to having that conversation about work-life balance? And I guess, are employers and organizations having that conversation too? I hope they are. I obviously am talking about it with my friends. I think those coming from the consultant background are definitely having a harder time than a nonprofit. And it always sort of does depend on the organization. Some organizations do expect you to work those longer hours. And so because our executive has had that conversation with all of us of, hey, I'll probably message you in other, in crazy hours and like has set the expectation that you really don't have to respond unless I say something is urgent. We need to do this right now. It's an evolving campaign, something like that. I think his action is part of what has encouraged me to speak up among our interns as well and say, just because I'm messaging you, you are not working with us full time right now. I am working full time. So I am going to message you, but really try and create that work-life balance yeah. for yourself. So I'm definitely hopeful that others are doing so, but I think it probably starts also with if someone has modeled that for them. So my right. boss has modeled it for me. So I've been done it with our interns as well. 
I think it's very interesting that we asked you this as like a communications person professionally now. You almost have to teach yourself how to not communicate and how to not use that muscle that you've that you flex all day at work. It's it's interesting. And it also presents an interesting conundrum for newer communication students or communications people trying to get out there who are in like their first internship, their first job and ask, am I expected to be at my computer 24 seven? Also, do you pay overtime? Yes and no. Okay. Very true. Very true. I think it's a tough spot coming into an organization. Do the things like not having the mail app on your phone. You don't have to have that or maybe have the app on and no notifications so that if urgent, sure, you can log in and look at it, but it's not bombarding you because you want to be intentional about that time with your family and friends and not constantly looking. And as soon as you start constantly looking, it's really hard to stop and go the other way. I wasn't able to stop and go the other way at my first job. And that's why I tried to be so strict with myself at Ash. A valuable lesson. As we are getting closer to the close closing of this podcast, uh, what haven't we asked you that maybe you'd like to share, plug, something you think is important that we haven't talked about? Anything in that regards? I think it's really important for this generation to start talking about how much money everyone makes. I think we're all better off if we are willing to be open about our salary. Number one, among your friends so that you're setting clear expectations for what you're able to pay for so that everyone's not inviting you out to the most expensive restaurant and mad at you every week when you can't come. Talking about what works for you is going to be really helpful with your friends. It's going to be really helpful with your partner later on if you're comfortable talking about finances. And then when you get into the room to negotiate a salary, the other person is completely fine with this. They've been doing it for years, arguably. And so if you're uncomfortable talking about finances and what you think you're worth, you're just going to end the conversation and say, okay, sure, that works because you're uncomfortable in the conversation and you're not going to push for what you're worth. And so I would say it's helpful to start those conversations. And I encourage a lot of the students that I've chatted with for the mentorship program at UW to talk amongst your friends and see what other people are making in other industries, in other cities, have that information. It also helps you in a salary negotiation to be able to say, my counterpart at this organization makes this much money. Why don't I? And not just reference Glassdoor. Glassdoor has that information, but a lot of it varies extensively. So to have real world examples is really going to help you and is going to help you feel less crazy asking for more money. If you know it's real, if you know someone else your age has made that, you're going to push for it much harder. And so I'm happy to baseline the conversation and say, for anyone who's wondering, my starting salary in DC was $50,000 a year. And that was very good. I was very pleased with that. A lot of um, people I know have started in the 30s or 40s in DC, and it's very challenging on that, that salary. And so be ready and budget, obviously, for yourself to make sure that you actually can accept a salary at that range. And then be ready to talk to your friends about it and get each other comfortable talking about finances. It seems the overarching theme is know your worth. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I mean, I would give full credit for my sister for forcing this conversation on me. She went to UW as well, studied in the business school, 
And so I think in the business world, people are much more comfortable talking about finances and uh, they're more used to it. And so she's pushed that as her personal mission on me. And so I try and bring that to the nonprofit sphere as well, because we're clearly not talking about it. And I'm probably the only one who brings it up in other situations. So I hope that our next generation does more of that. That's actually so funny because I'm, I'm sure so many UW students avoid the business school like it's the plague. But there's a lesson to be learned. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot we can learn from both sides. Definitely. Seeing as it's been a challenging and at times stressful year and a half for everyone, we have been asking all our guests as a closing question for something that makes them feel hopeful right now. So I guess what what's making you feel good right now? Well, other than the COVID vaccine that let me finally come back to Wisconsin, I would say the teachers and all the videos that you see online of ways that they've adapted to continue with virtual education, many of whom had their own children at home that they were trying to balance virtual learning for their children with their own class schedules. I think all the work that they've done and are continuing to do with this upcoming school year is insanely inspiring to me. And I don't know how any of them do it, but it definitely gives me hope. Fabulous. Well, that wraps it up. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Megan, and for all you do for the University of Wisconsin program. Please stay in touch with us. We'd love to have you back. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.